A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 53 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the history of hearts, frogs, or majesty. Or peas, fleas, and decrees are <laughs> the hen, Big Ben, and the pen. Everything comes back to stationery. And rhyming for you. And rhyming for me. I'm stuck in a rut of rhyming at the moment. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything, simply everything, Sam, has a history. And crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of lions is all about... Gustavus Adolphus, that Swedish king, the Lion of the North, or about ice cream and, of course, freedom, or the history of hats was all about witchcraft, kingship and politeness. Oh, and bishops' mitres, which, of course, of course, brings us round to the history of the Reformation. <laughs> the man sitting opposite me is the Wizard of Weeks. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daywell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Very good to see you. Um, and the man sitting opposite me is the truly wonderful, the majesty of microbes. It is the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. This week... What are we, we doing? Well, we're, uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that there's quite a lot of noise because we're in the shed down the end of my garden and I live next to a railway line. So if you hear some kind of squeaking, groaning and moaning, it's not us, it's trains. Yes, and in case you didn't get it, we are unexpectedly dog-sitting today. Uh, so if you hear dogs barking in the background, that's what it is. And of course, we should do the unexpected history of dogs, mm. having done cats. And breaking and entering. And breaking and entering crime. Mm. Fences. That would be good. I'd be really interested in that, actually, yeah. Yes. Theft. That's all to do with absence, isn't it? Anyway, we're here because we are going back onto a subject we've done previously um, to do a bit of an update on it. But because, inspired by several things. Correct. um, in, In the news, namely, Big Ben. Yeah. We're going back to our episode on the history of clocks, which we did live at Plymouth University. Yes. It was one of my most enjoyable ones, and the history of clocks is absolutely fantastic. So the fact that Big Ben has stopped in the news at the moment has really got us excited again about the history of clocks. Yes, and people are getting really upset mm. about the fact that this this clock, or the bell, Big Ben, the bell to be specific, is basically not going to be working for the next four years, except for certain dates, like Remembrance Sunday, yeah. uh, for example. Why uh, do you think people have got in such a fuss about why it? Is, why, why is that? Yeah. It's all over the place. The Prime Minister has been out saying, well, we're going to you know, rethink the whole thing. Um, why do you think it is? I think it's all to do with the importance of Victorian clock towers. Well, I think it's also it's also the sound of it. It's such a nostalgic... If you think about it, it's such a nostalgic sound. Can you remember a time when you did not remember hearing that clock? 
that clock is something of my childhood. Yes, no, I think so because well, its bongs are broadcast by the BBC. There's yes. there's a microphone in there, isn't yes. it? So it's actually it's the sound of Britain, which is yes. Well, I think certainly it was broadcast through Empire quite consciously. They wanted yep. to broadcast the sound of the clock. Mm. So you, what you've got, I think, is well, if you, th- you think about Victorian clock towers, so, so you know from the 1850s and 1860s, also with mm. the, it's also with railways, isn't it? People yeah. start building clock towers, and time becomes massively important throughout the UK. Yeah. An important part of that was clock towers, so so people could look up to a tower and they could see what. What the time was yeah. and so you'd end up with these kind of almost like village clock towers or town clock towers and big ben is kind of like that but for the british empire it's the village clock tower of britain throughout the world yeah and and throughout the country as well and i think it has a really important cultural resonance today because of the role that it's played in the past and I, I, what I also like about it is the, this interest in the name of it. So Big Ben, as you say, relates to the bell. Yeah. But it's, people are worried about, they're not worried about the clock stopping. They're worried about the bells not ringing. Yes. That's what yes. is bothering people that's... more than the absence of time. Because that's what denotes the time. I haven't often considered this kind of very explicit link between time and sound before. Yeah. Um, a grandfather clock, for example. It's a sort of summons, you know, it's time to go to work, basically. Yeah. We talked about this with clocks before, isn't it? Clocks and time, ordering the keeping, lives. Keeping you to account, ordering, ordering, yeah, yeah, ordering your everyday lives. You said it's about empire. It's also about security. It's a sound of the nation. And it's a sound that kept going throughout the world wars. You know, there are, there are certain times when it has stopped throughout its history. I think during the Blitz, it were some of the um, the hands were were damaged and it couldn't work for a while. But throughout the Blitz, it becomes this um, security sound that basically shows that the country is still going, and it's sent out to the troops so that they know that the you know the mothership or whatever is still intact. And I think it's that symbolism that people associate it with. It's a sense of Britishness. The opposite of silence is emergency as well, isn't it? Yeah. Certainly yeah. with bells, you know, ringing out emergency, but also coming back to this summons for church, whether it's mass yeah. or, or whatever yeah. it is. But do you know the times that it has, it has stopped recently? No. Margaret Thatcher's funeral, where they switched off the bells um, as a sign of respect. The same with Winston Churchill's mm. uh, funeral. See, I, I was thinking of stopping the clocks, which mm. is to do with um, funerals. The Auden poem. Yes, yeah. we'll stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos with muffled drum. Sorry. <laughs> and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Um, which is the, you know, the funeral blues from, um, we all know it from Four Weddings and a Funeral, don't we? Yeah. So stopping clocks as part of funerals, for me, is a more obvious link than, than sound. So I'm, I'm quite surprised by that. Mm. It's quite a significant thing then, it isn't is quite, it? It is quite a significant thing. And it means that, you know, the passing of the halting of time. Yeah. So one of the things that bothered me about it is a load of um, politicians saying there's a huge amount of guff has been spoken about Big Ben stopping. But I think what we're trying to make everyone realise is actually in that silence is a really interesting history. Yes. And and the history of clocks and our reaction to what's going on is is massively important. Yeah. And it's also entirely practical, the reason that it's stopping. It's going to take four years to, you know restore the clock um it's going to take about two years apparently to take it apart and then put it back together again and it takes half a day in order to then set it up so that it will ring um so and also the bell you think about those poor people who are going to be working 
in the tower, yeah. the bell is 118 decibels when it rings, which is louder than a than an aeroplane setting off. And this could cause people serious damage. Yeah. So I mean, it all comes back to the health and safety. Yes, you know, it's health and safety. It, it is very sensible. I mean, one of one of the things that we're doing at the moment is we are, in some ways, we're talking about our travels where we've been off over the summer yep. and um, things that have inspired us and in unexpected ways. And wandering around the Natural History Museum in London and going through their amazing exhibit yep. on volcanoes and earthquakes, which if you haven't been to, is incredible, absolutely incredible. You can go into a room that simulates an earthquake. You have a bar wow. to hang on to. But it's basically a, a recreated, uh, I think, Japanese supermarket. And you can sort of, and I'm, I'm shaking here as, as I'm doing this. You I can should, see you, you should it. take this. But it, I, went, I, I went on this and, and experienced it. And it really gives you that kind of sensation of being in an earthquake. But what I'm, what I'm going to talk about is about this clock here. Oh. Do you want to describe that? Because in our last episode on clocks, Sam had discovered... All these amazing clocks. That, yeah, so I, that I had became stopped. obsessed with clocks that were frozen in time. So I texted so, him this. Was well, so wait one from the Titanic? Yes, I did one from Hiroshima. Hiroshima, and another Grand one. Ground Zero. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I use those frozen clocks to talk about uh, people deliberately stopping yeah. time, like Miss Havisham. Yes. in Dickens. Yes, and so I'm quite excited about this. This is a pocket watch. Um, it's got Roman numerals around it. It looks kind of early 20th century and its hands are missing. It's been smashed and possibly scorched. I don't know. Um, but certainly the, the, the face is broken, but there's enough of it left to see that it, that it, it very much is a pocket watch. Yeah, it's a, it's a destroyed watch. I sent Sam a little text of this and then dug around to find out what it's from. And it is from... 1902, 8th of May, when we had one of the worst, probably it's been labelled the worst volcanic explosion of the 20th century. And it happened in Mount Pele in Martinique. Martinique is a Caribbean uh, island, a sort of French colony. And on this day, it exploded in absolutely incredible, incredible style. Uh, it's known as a pyroclastic, okay, um, a pyroclastic, a pyroclastic flow, eruption, which is basically isn't that what happened at Pompeii? Is it? I think so. Yeah, but it's gas and lava. It's more or less sort of liquid flame. Um, that comes down, and it can travel at incredible speeds. Yeah. This volcano travelled at 440 miles an hour. It reached the nearby town of Saint-Pierre within a minute. <laughs> and within a minute, and the way that it worked, the, 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 the flow just hugged the ground level and then just ignited everything Gosh. that it touched immediately they knew that things were going wrong for you know for a, a month or so beforehand there's this dry lake at the top of the mountain which had basically filled with water yeah. and was about 180 meters across and it started bubbling the telegraph official who was keeping track of this uh, was sending these regular reports backwards and forwards and so oh nothing nothing happened his last report was ali Literally, get, get the hell out of there. I, I, the I just, of there. Um, I've just Googled this, okay, and I, I didn't know about it. And, and the images are like Hiroshima. All that's left are just sort of ankle-high remains and some kind of... All the, like the worst of the blitz. Roofs gone, walls gone, 
utter devastation. This watch is is linked to that. It's one of the one of the surviving elements of it. Was it an important part of the exhibition? It was an, it was a very important part of the exhibition. Was it kind of yeah, central? There, was it, there, you... are, there are a few sort of artifacts that survived. Yeah, um, and this was one of the main things, and it's quite iconic. This sort of stopped clock. Yeah, and there were almost no survivors. The town of about between twenty eight and thirty thousand people, because people from the from the villages further up nearer the mountain had come into the town, so the the population swelled. Almost everyone was dead instantly. Two people survived. Uh, there was a prisoner who was in this sort of dungeon cell with no windows, and, and he managed to survive. And then there's another man, uh, Camper Leandre, uh, who lived on the edge of the city, and we have his testimony of exactly what happened. Oh, great. And I, want, I want to read it to you here. I felt a terrible wind blowing. The earth began to tremble and the sky suddenly became dark. I turned to go into the house with great difficulty, climbed the three or four steps that separated me from my room and felt my arms and legs burning, also my body. I dropped upon a table. At this moment, four others sought refuge in my room, crying and writhing with pain, although their garments showed no sign of having been touched by flame. At the end of ten minutes, one of these, the young Delavorde girl, aged about ten years, fell dead. The others left. I got up and went to another room where I found the father, still clothed, Latin, lying on the bed, dead. He was purple and inflated, but the clothing was intact. Crazed and almost overcome, I threw myself on a bed, inert and awaiting death. My senses returned to me in perhaps an hour when I beheld the roof burning. With sufficient strength left, my legs bleeding and covered with burns, I ran to Fonds-Saint-Denis, six kilometres from Saint-Pierre. Cool. So this is an incredible story of survival mm. as well. You know, the fact that these sort of horrific goings-on are happening around you, the fact that you are in such personal bodily pain, but you are able to muster all your resources to, to drag yourself out of there. Mm. Um, but again, time, clock. It's, it's wonderful. It and I was just saying here that the, uh, the eruption is at 7.52, which is when this guy did his last transmission of Ali. So um, <laughs> 7.52 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, but it was a bit more strangled. Ali! 7.52, so that clock, you know, we don't know where it came from, but I'm assuming it was 7.53, 7.54. You can almost see on it, it depends where, which way round you hold it, doesn't it? But you can almost see one of the hands still intact. Yeah, and it looks like it's been melted off. It looks like it's been melted on, and here it's been melted on there. So what are we looking at there? If we say that is uh, 12... Goodness me, no, I can't read this clock at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the point is, we can... Not even going to attempt to. We can add 7.53 yes. on... Um, oh, what's the date of it? Um, 8th of May 1902 to our list of stopped clocks, which yes. we discovered. I think um, we should write about it. I think it's a brilliant example. Okay. Well, we can add it to 3.07am on the 15th of April 1912, which is Titanic. Yes. We can add it to 8.15am on the 6th of August 1945 which was Hiroshima, and we can add it to 10.04 on the 11th of September 2001. Yes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the things that I'm interested in also to take it in a different direction is why are historians so interested in time, you know, and thinking about about change over time. I mean, after all, that's what historians are concerned about doing. How have we evolved to where we've, where we've come to today? And this is something that always struck me. As a young boy, I used to ch- spend hours chatting to my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother lived to be 98. Mm-hmm. And she was born in Victorian England. Yeah. She was born in the small uh, seaside town of Beer in Devon, mm-hmm. which is beautiful if any of you... Uh, have never been there. Beautiful little um, little little town, and I just think growing up in rural Devon, um, quite what that woman must have seen living to ninety eight. She died in the in the early nineties now, I think. Yeah, and it, it, incredible. I mean, you just think of what has happened. She has witnessed most of the events from the turn of the century, you know, most of the twentieth century. She's witnessed world wars, two yeah, two world wars. Um, she's lost children, you know, lost a husband. She has seen so much technological advancement in terms of transatlantic flight, in terms of motor cars and all that. How has the, how has her life changed in that way? Mm. Well, it's, what I think is interesting about that is from our perspective about her experience being unique, but of course it wasn't unique. No, no. And, uh, you know, that's that's the real difference. Yeah. And how something so prevalent, which which was experienced and understood and witnessed by millions of people becomes gone. How something can be so common and then just vanished. I like that. I also think the other thing about um, historians and time is is, um, 
there is an academic study of chronology, which I've only recently yes. come across. I didn't know anything about this, right. but, but of course there, there must be. Uh, Chinese history is a, a, a great one. Written records only go back a certain distance, and the very, very old records are very vague about right. times and periods. So the length of reigns, the names of people, we take so much of it for granted. You know, we know about Henry V, we know about Edward III, we know what happened in our history because of written records. But someone has kind of gone through it all and worked out chronology. And these chronologists and the chronologies, it's still ongoing work. Um, and people are using more and more exciting, more scientific techniques to um, date the past, basically. And the thing with chronology is how do you start thinking about chronology? You know, how do you impose a chronology, mm. you know, that makes any sense? If you're doing political history... It's quite easy to impose a, a sort of political chronology that looks at the changing reigns, for example, or changing prime ministers. But if what you're doing is you're looking at something like the the history of the clock or the kinds of things that we do, they don't necessarily fit naturally into that kind of chronology. Mm, interesting. If you, if you deal with social and cultural history, yeah. it doesn't fall into that. If you think about a periodization as well, the way in which people periodize the past from the ancient world to the... Well, the, the, the my favourite is the Middle Ages. <laughs> the Middle Ages. Yeah. What on earth does that mean? Yeah, in between really? what? Yeah. Well, yeah, so in between the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment. Yeah. I don't know. And Dark Ages is a term that we, you know, we're, we're not allowed to use uh, anymore because it's a, it's a very sort of negative term for a period that was in fact much more, much richer and more vibrant than, yeah. we, than we think of. But what you've got is these series of ages or epochs. So who, who came up with are, these titles? I don't, this is amazing. I know these emerge who, from, the, from yeah. Who came, Who said? Oh, the Dark Ages, post-Roman. Let's call it dark. And then I don't know. What, I don't know what to call this. Historians other of the past. Let's call it. These. Let's call it middle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you about my the astronomical clock that I found in Lund? Gosh, you're back to cathedral okay. yep. this summer. No, tell me about that. Oh, absolutely extraordinary clock. It shows the in. It plays in Dulce Ubilo. Can you Google it there? Because I, I haven't, I'm not online okay. in your... Um, in my shed, in my in magic your, shed. In your, ah, there we are. That's it. Ah, Look that, that. Well, that, that looks very similar to the one in Exeter. Yes. Doesn't it? I, 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 I'm, I'm struggling here. What is an astronomical clock? An astronomical clock is not an ordinary clock, but it, it's a clock that not only tells the time, but also tells other things to do with where the sun, the moon set. It allows you to sort of check the planets and their sort of orientation. Importantly, for this period, it also allows you to date um, feast days. So as Easter and dates like that and Saints' days okay. move and shift, yeah. it allows you to date that. Um, but this was produced, they think, in about uh, 1380. Yeah. And the 1300s are the time when you get these astronomical clocks uh, being produced throughout the Western and the it's Eastern outside world. Or inside? It's inside. Like the Exeter it's, one. It's inside, like the Exeter one. I wonder why it's inside. Surely outside's better. I mean, all the clocks outside. I found out that the Eiffel Tower used to have a clock. There are lots of clocks outside. Yeah. Uh, as, astronomical clocks outside. But oh, it's, okay. Yeah. Um, oh, there's, it's, isn't it's, there one in St. Mark's Square? I think there might be. I think there is. I think there's also one in Munich. Okay. Um, there are lots in lots in France, in Beauvais, in Besançon. There are clocks in 
um, Rouen, lots in France. Okay. Um, all sorts of clocks like these. There's different types of clocks. Yes. I, li- I, I, I like that. And I, I, what I like about it is this kind of powerful reminder that time is, of course, all linked with the heavens. It has to be, yes. by definition, and also with navigation uh, around our own planets. The most important bit about that, I think, is to understand the difference between the way people told the time before the 1850s which is when Big Ben was was um, built, wasn't it? Well, yep. 1830, yep. 1840s. Yep. It's yep. around that kind of period. So, and Back that's to all to do with railways as well. It's all to do with... Timetables. So, so, so basically, time, wherever you were in the UK, noon, 12 o'clock, was when the sun was directly ahead, when the shadows were shortest. So you could put a shadow stick in the ground and it would have a long shadow, long shadow, long shadow, short shadow, and it would get long again. And that moment is when the sun was directly ahead and that was noon. Okay. Mm. The problem is, is it's different everywhere all over the country. <laughs> and that matters hugely for railway timetables. Yes. Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah. So, and then it changed around um, the 18... I'm a bit vague here, but I know it's kind of mid-19th century, when it suddenly became massively important to say, actually, no, this is noon right now for the whole country. And it's not yeah. different in Cornwall as it is in Norfolk. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, the difference between east and west matters more than north and south because of, because of the way the sun moves. You can think about Greenwich Mean Time and then how they signalled noon by dropping that ball. They've got a kind of ball on a stick yeah. above the Royal Observatory at Greenwich. Mm. Um, but that wasn't the only ball on a stick. It is now, but there were balls on sticks all over the country. And when the, the ball rose and rose and rose and rose and rose, and then it went boom, and that's when it dropped, and that was noon. And so balls on sticks was actually a, like a, a very well-known way of telling the time. And, why, and, and what's, what's interesting also is why it's so important to have standard time like that. Yeah. But also coming back to it, so every day at noon, because clocks weren't as accurate as they are now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and going back to Big Ben, again, Big Ben has these, um, well, they've gone now, but they had a collection of tiny 1P pieces on the pendulum to stop it yeah. um, going too fast, basically. Yeah. And they took them off when they, when it was going seven seconds too fast, apparently. Yeah. So you had to always go back to a but, specific time and but, to reset your watch. Yeah. But this idea of why you, of why you want to standardise time is all about imposing imposing order. Yeah. So, you know, as a state, as a power, as, as as a government, as a system, you want to impose your standard time across a country, which then, of course, is, is important in terms of trade, in terms of business, in terms of joining things up. It's the same reason that people try and impose ideologies or, or a, the, the same coinage, the same language. You know, time again is a, a sort of mechanism of power connected to empire, imperialism. Of course, timetables are very dangerous. Railway timetables are very dangerous. Are they? Uh, caused the First World War, <laughs> according to A.J.P. Taylor. Oh. War by war by timetable. Brilliant little little book, entirely polemic. But it argues, I'm sure I've talked about this when we talked about clocks before, but it argues that the, the whole reason that war came out was because the Russians mobilised before the Germans because it was all down to the way in which their their trains ran. So go out and read War by Timetable by A.J.P. Taylor. And I think just to move on to where we're going to go next in the future, I'd like to do a history of height. Height. Because I think Big Ben is, it leads into so many really wonderful questions about being seen. I saw this photograph of loads of um, politicians kind of leaning up and looking at it. It's about being seen. It's about privileged 
view. Yeah. It's also about this soundscape. We were talking about bells. So if sound is higher up, it goes further. Yeah. Um, it's about towers. It is about towers, which I... I, I, I used to that... live, when I, when I was growing up as a kid, I used to live by the sea in Hornsey. And I lived in uh, a house called Tower House. Right. And the reason we called it that was because it had enormous folly in the back garden, 100 metre folly. Mm. Back in the day, in Victorian times, when the person who owned the house was travelling, was a merchant who was travelling from Hull, and he wanted his meal to be ready for him when he was coming home. And he got his servant to go up and stand in that tower to watch his coach coming back along the road. Tower House. I've probably got the history of that all sort of jumbled up. That was the story that I knew as a seven-year-old. There's Telegraph Hill... Yes. Near Exeter. Yes. Um, so it, it, hills become massively important with the telegraph, with telegraph yes. system. So they're actually systems of communicating. And um, Armada beacons. Mm. And there's also a um, Which Roman... Which were never lit. They were never lit. Supposedly. There's a Roman signalling station on a hill just over there, about a mile away. Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. Very good. Well, let's do the history of height. I'm fascinated. And also, because we're writing our book... What book are we writing, James? What book are we writing? Histories of the Unexpected. Ah. It will be in your Christmas stockings at Christmas 2018. We're going to do a mini-series on the... Buy for everyone. A mini-series on the history of of writing, aren't we? So we're going to break it down into... What are we doing? We're doing... Well, we've done the study and we've done the pen and we've done the letter. Um, So I think we're going to do handwriting... History of handwriting. History of handwriting. I don't believe handwriting has a history. You prove me wrong. Handwriting has a really important history. Paper. Paper. Ooh, paper. Yeah. I don't yeah. believe paper has a history. Paper. I have agreed to give a talk uh, in January arguing that paper is the most important invention of all time. Mm, apart from clocks. No, no, no. Paper is. <laughs> I've no idea why, but I've said I will do it, and okay. do it I will. Fine. All so right. We've got um, to do paper. We're doing paper. We're doing codes. We're doing codes. Ooh, different types codes. of writing. Code is, is about writing, but it's also about tattoos Ooh, okay. and straps. And straps. Straps. Yeah, I'll tell you, leather straps. Okay. Or the history of books. I'm, themselves, which, which is, um, there, there is an obvious and well-known history of books, but we will be doing an unexpected history yes. of books, won't It's we? all about magic. It's all about fire, magic, and it's about things that you find in books. There's a brilliant book, i am just give you a little taster, brilliant book in the Folder Shakespeare Library. This is a 17th century book, and in it, is a pair of rather rusty spectacles. Mm. So it's not about reading. Book, books aren't about reading. Nobody reads books. Books are weapons. Books are talismans. Books are totems. That's right, very good. And um, this links with the one we've just done um, on the signature. When I talked about my signature, um, the signature part two, that was, wasn't it? Yeah. And I suddenly said, I bet you somewhere there is an early version of my signature. And weirdly, I found it. I went to stay with my mum and dad um, uh, the other night. Tell him, mum and dad. Hello, um, Sam's mum and dad. And they gave me a collection of my old school books. So here we have, um, this must be from 88, 89, maybe? It's a very clean school book. My school books are covered in scrawls. There we are. Eight out of ten. I was obviously very, very bright. (laughs) Oh, no, 48%. That was terrible. What was that? Passage A. Um, Is is there a signature on it? That's the point, isn't it? It is written at the beginning with um, Sam Willis, named Sam Willis. And tell me what you make of that. I'm, I'm rather surprised by it. It's completely unlike my writing now. Well, it's quite well formed writing. It's so, so I it's reckon quite I was well probably thirteen writing. or fourteen. And actually. it's it's written with uh, my um, expertise. Here. It looks like it's written with an ink pen. Yes. So rather than a biro, written with an ink pen. So I'm assuming a fountain pen. 
and it says Sam Willis. I'm not somebody who's a, an expert in graphology. I think the, so one of the points is, is my, hand, my handwriting is very you. spiky. Okay, it is now. It is, it is italic not, and spiky. You're spiky. <laughs> Very rounded you're, you're and kind. You're fluffy. Generous. That's not true, by the way. Um, but the origins of my spiky signature are very clear. And I would actually suggest that my S looks a bit like a lightning bolt. Uh, I think that you are, in fact, Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But look, look, this is interesting at the back. See, the, the interesting thing with school books is not about the lessons. It's not about the syllabus. It's not about the marks or anything. It's about the graffiti. Yeah. And at the back here, there's somebody who's been scrawling in your book. No. Who's that? that, that that's a sort of practice signature. Isn't it Kelly or somebody? Who's no, Kelly? Well, I, I don't know. It's not me, is it? No. Somebody got hold of your book and scrawled in it. Well, hang on. That's pretty cool writing. Look at that. Ooh, five things. The bed at the top. The title. Prep, prep Story. So I had to write something called Prep Story, and I've written it in a sort of chunky, square, weird writing. See, the history of handwriting is fascinating. Is, I, I'm, and we're, doing, we're recording that tomorrow, aren't yeah. we? I was... Um, Hmm. I was experimenting with my handwriting from an early age. It never sort of settled. Good. And um, one more thing I have. I've got a whole book full of school books here. I've also got this. This is cool. So I uh, bet this is something you won. Are you showing off now, Willis? <laughs> it is a silver... This is what I won for being the best at everything. Hey, shut up. Oh, look at that. There we go. This, it is a silver sort of tray plate made out of solid silver presented to mate William John Adlam Willis, Royal Navy, who is my great-grandfather. Mm. by Admiral Captain and Officers of HMS Delhi in 1920, and they've all signed it. So here... Oh. So the signature is about, it's about trophies. It's about memory. It's about celebration of somebody, the, signing somebody's... I don't understand what's happened there. So they've signed it, and an engraver has copied their signature. Yes. Gosh, so that's incredible. Actually, so is this on the occasion of his retirement? Yeah. Or? Uh, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? What a lovely thing. It's I better, think they're Much probably... better than a, a card that you then lose... HMS Delhi, 1920. There's a Paget there, P-A-G-E-T. Is it Paget or Paget? I never Paget. know. Paget. Paget. Um, very famous... Famous political family, the Famous Pagets. admiral, actually. Ooh, famous naval family, I would, I would mm. say. And some various other people here. So it's, um, it's a really smashing thing, this. I'm going to have it in, on my wall. Excellent. I, I was trying to see whose signature I like out of all of these the most. Walter Cowan, he's got a lovely, lovely long C... You should put a photograph of that up on Twitter for people. Yes, I will. I will. I will do that now. Um, who's got the worst? Well, that's a beautiful one. J. M. Clark, I reckon. And our new look website. Poor old M. S. Braid Bradley. Bradley, terrible signature. You barely write. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for listening to us. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and please tell all your friends. But do please leave a review. It really helps us spread the word. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit, and a series of other fantastic shows that you should check out. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months. Show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss, and much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Bye! Bye! Bye. 
If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And Twitter, at TheHistoryMC.